Well, thank you, worship team, and thank you, congregation, and powerful worship uh, this morning. It seems that uh, every word that was sung today uh, helps us as we get ready to enjoy a communion time together uh, as a church with each other. You know, it's really hard to believe that this is the first Sunday in August, and uh, you know, somebody stole the summer. I don't know where it went, they just ran off with it, and uh, uh, Jesse is away with his family uh, this week, and uh, a well-deserved time away, and we're pushing the pause button on Jonah. Come next week, you have to be here. This is when he finishes the series on Jonah, and uh, it's going to be a thriller. You want to be here for it, so we, we hope you'll come. Uh, but we have uh, received tremendous feedback from many people about that, uh, that his teaching from that book, and uh, it's been a blessing to so many, and uh, look forward to his return. Within the past month, we as a, a country have sort of celebrated uh, what took place 50 years ago um, as we uh, saw man first land on the moon. It was quite an achievement. You, you probably heard about it. Um, and, uh, and, and I recall at that time I was uh, 15 years old, so right now many of you are doing your advanced math, uh, calculating how old I am. But it was, it was amazing to see all of the things that, that we saw, uh, just to, to recognize that in, uh, in 50 short years we had, a man had gone from walking to flying, and then since then we have uh, placed people on the moon and, and brought them back safely, and, uh, and so it, it's one of the great achievements uh, of, of uh, our country and, and of mankind, um, and we remembered so much from it. I, I just I kind of went back, uh, just thinking about it, seeing the video footage of that landing and, and, the, and the first uh, steps on the moon, and we remember the famous words and, and what was said and what took place. Uh, we remember uh, where we were when it happened and who we were with, uh, many gathered around um, well, it didn't matter. It was a black and white picture anyway, so, uh, but it was, it was rough. I mean, and, and you're trying to see and trying to figure out what, what is happening, and, and uh, uh, we remember uh, all of those times. Uh, it was like a feeling of celebration, achievement, uh, satisfaction, and what that, what that event meant to us. Uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was wonderful. I mean, for our family, it was great because my dad had an uncle who worked for NASA, and uh, and a couple of weeks after uh, the moon landing, we went on a, uh, it, it was a sort of a family torture. We went on a, a month-long trip around the United States in a trailer. It was, it, we survived that too. But, uh, but we went to, uh, went to see uh, Uncle Charlie, and, and, he, and he was part of his NASA engineering aspect was to figure out how to make the flag fly with, uh, without any air up there. You know, and I thought he did a pretty good job. You know, we were we 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 kind of uh, thanked him for that, and it was uh, it was just a great time uh, in, in our lives, as I recall it. Um, but this morning, we're going to take time to remember not just a mere historical event uh, of some random accomplishment of man. Today, we celebrate and remember God's divine rescue of fallen and sinful man in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we often hear of people who are accidentally finding themselves in harm's way. They're entrapped in a life and death situation. The clock is ticking, time is running out, and they are in desperate need of rescue. 
And so somebody somewhere, sometimes it's a government or a, a local agency, they begin to mobilize. They begin to make plans for the rescue. They develop rescue teams and they get the equipment and the personnel uh, are all gathered. And then the rescue itself is underway. And then we, because we have uh, global media coverage, you can go anywhere in the world and see what, uh, what great tragedy is taking place and see how the rescue is prevailing. Uh, we, we all as a, as a people hold our breath in, in, in anticipation, hoping that it's gonna be a successful rescue. And then after that, we will have thousands and thousands of stories, human interest stories about the entire thing. And then after that, we'll go on to the next rescue, right? Isn't that usually how it happens? Well, the scriptures tell us that the first man, Adam, fashioned and created in the image of God and in whom God breathed life was designed to walk in fellowship with him, but he succumbed to temptation and fell into sin. And his act of willful disobedience, he was doomed to live in a broken state, in a broken world, apart from any ongoing holy communion with God. All of that prompted God to ask, where are you? Calling out to him, knowing that he was lost, because he was lost. But even in Genesis 3, as God was comforting the offenders with their sin and judging the serpent, he included a promise that we celebrate today. He said enmity would exist between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And God said these beautiful words. He will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first offering of good news that a rescue is underway and fallen man will be delivered. And for those of you who like a more visceral description, I, I like what the NIV translation says. Uh, it renders God saying to the serpent, he will crush your head. The seed of the woman was Jesus, who would one day provide the means and the opportunity to save mankind from the eternal consequences of sin. But those consequences still remain with us, some of those do. How did the fall affect humanity? Well, it was catastrophic in every way. Because just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. You know, you think of the plague of the Ebola virus, that it's so lethal. You think of the Black Plague in the Middle Ages was horrific. The fall of man put him on a course not just of physical devastation, but of physical, uh, spiritual destruction, eternal suffering as well. Effects of the fall are numerous. They are far-reaching. It's affected every aspect of our being. It's affected our lives on earth. It's affected our eternal destiny. One of the immediate effects was that man was separated from God. Whereas Adam and Eve experienced perfect communion and fellowship with God, their rebellion against him caused that fellowship with him to be broken. Their eyes saw that the created world was made, in it, and they were innocent eyes seeing everything. But because of their sin, 
their eyes and their minds became corrupted. No longer innocent because of their sin and shame, they began covering themselves and hiding themselves from God's presence. They hid from him. And truthfully, man has been hiding and covering self from God ever since. I remember as a young father, when I'd arrive home from work, and my two little sons, Michael and Andrew, would, would run to meet me at the door, and man, that filled my tank. Whatever the day was like, it all went away because we would, they would come home to the door, I would come in through the door, and they would grab me by one on one leg and one on the other, and we'd walk our way into the living room, and then a massive wrestling match would ensue, and it was just wonderful. And I can't even imagine what it would be like to have that relationship broken to those who I love, who are, are part of me, running from me instead of to me. But that's what man did. Once the sin was committed, they were running, running from God, hiding from God, separating themselves from God. And not only did they separate themselves from God, their own relationship was fractured. Remember what Adam's response was to God after being confronted with his sin? He says, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So in one sentence, he blames God and he blames his wife. Where does Eve have an opportunity to blame someone? Well, she pins it on the animals. The serpent deceived me and I ate. You know, there were no streets in Eden back then, and there were, buses hadn't been invented yet, but they were both throwing each other under the bus. So, so, you know, it was, it was a mess. All because of their sin. And it doesn't take the appointment of a special prosecutor to understand they were guilty, fully guilty. The evidence was plentiful. They only had one thing that they had been asked not to do, but they willfully chose to do it anyway. And because of the fall, death became inescapable reality. All of creation was subject to it. Because of sin, all men die. Because of sin, all animals die. Because of sin, all plants die. Because of sin, every living thing dies. Paul was right when he said in chapter 8, the book of Romans, he said, creation is in bondage to corruption. And then later he says, the whole of creation groans, all awaiting the redemption from the effects of sin. And there's no immunity there's no inoculation. Paul said the wages of sin is death. And worse still, we not only die physically, but if we die without Christ, we experience spiritual death. And the Bible gives it a name, and the name is hell. And that's one of the things that's often not preached in churches in this day and age. That somehow God just seems to say, no problem, no harm, no foul. But to the religious establishment of his day, Jesus was very direct in confronting them. 
See, they were masquerading in self-aggrandizing and self-focused acts of false worship. And in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, Jesus prophetically pronounces seven woes upon them. And he concludes by saying these not-so-seeker-sensitive words. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So, to love God is at the heart of everything that's good. But the idol of self is a result of the fall. And what follows are other sins that are equally offensive to God. In all ways, sin is exalting oneself. And it shows in how we live our lives. Pride, arrogance, self-importance, vanity. We often call attention to ourselves and our good qualities and our accomplishments and ignore the things that offend God. We minimize those shortcomings, those weaknesses. And we seek after special favors and opportunities in life. We want to get an extra edge so we can outdo the other guy. And we display determination in seeing that our wants and our needs are met while we ignore the needs of others. In short, we place ourselves on the throne of our lives and we cast God to the outer courts of our existence. And the old line, and I have heard it, I'll call him if and when I need him. Right now, I'm doing okay. This is how most people in our culture address their relationship with God. When Adam chose to rebel against his creator, he lost his innocence. He incurred the penalty of physical and spiritual death. His mind was darkened by sin, and so were the minds of his descendants. The Apostle Paul said of pagans, since they do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. Paul also described our condition in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He said, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. John's gospel quotes Jesus this way, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. But it seems that that is where man likes to reside. And if you're here today without Christ, you are in a condition of darkness. But the good news is it doesn't have to remain that way. Paul told the Ephesians, you were once in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. The purpose of salvation is to open the eyes of unbelievers and turn them from the darkness to the light and the power of God. How about you? Are you stumbling about blindly or are you walking in the light of Christ? Is he with you? Is he in you? Are you his child? Let this day be the day of your salvation. Well, in this state, man is utterly incapable of doing or choosing that which is acceptable to God apart from divine grace. Because the sinful mind is hostile to God. 
It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Only through Christ can that fellowship be restored. Because in him we are made as righteous and sinless in God's eyes, just as Adam and Eve were before they sinned. Second Corinthians, Paul says, God made them who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And without the supernatural regeneration by the Holy Spirit, all men would remain in a fallen state. But because of his grace, his mercy, his loving kindness, God sent his son to die on a cross and take the penalty of our sin, reconciling us to God and making eternal life with him possible so that what was lost at the fall can be reclaimed at the cross. Our salvation comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he made it happen in this way. First, he became a man. If you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, we'll read these familiar words. It talks about how God became man. Verse 5 says this of Philippians 2, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's talk about the emptying of Christ. Some would say that he stopped being God for a while and became man. There's a word for that. It's called heresy. Christ surrendered none of his attributes of his deity, but rather he voluntarily restricted the independent use of those attributes in keeping with his purpose of living among men and their limitations. And he had limitations as a man. He was tempted. He faced distress. He faced weakness, hunger, thirst, pain, sorrow. And just so that we might understand that just as he was fully man, so he was fully God as evidenced in his miracles. Walking on the water, calming the sea, healing the blind, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, feeding the multitudes. And a more, on a more personal level, as he evidenced his divinity in his transfiguration, and in his resurrection, and in his ascension. From the glory of God to the humanity of earth, Christ emptied himself and further emptied and humbled himself in his humanity to suffer and die for us. In all aspects, he was fully God and fully man. And he even reminded those who were with him when he was arrested 
Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Now, you know how many is in a legion? Well, you know how many 12 legions? It's 60,000 angels. Jerusalem would have become very crowded at that point in time. He knew he had the power and the ability, but there was a far greater purpose. While on earth Jesus had full possession of his divine nature, his divine attributes, his divine rights and privileges, but in the taking of the form of man, he willfully withheld the expression of what made him divine. You know, we sing this beloved carol every Christmas, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Charles Wesley described it beautifully, the emptying of Christ in this way. In verse 2 he says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased is man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And then in verse 3, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This emptying was a part of what saved us. We will see his full divinity on display. It will overwhelm us, the power of the risen Christ. But that we might be saved, the Son of God became a man. And secondly, he suffered and died for us. In Isaiah 53, we read these words. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Think for a minute about his emotional suffering. Rejected by the religious leaders of Israel. Betrayed by one of his disciples, denied by another one of his disciples, despised. None of his friends were present to defend him. His followers had scattered. False accusations made against him by false witnesses. He was manipulated like a political football, tossed from the Sanhedrin to the Roman governor Pilate, who tossed him over to the provincial ruler Herod Antipas, who royally mocked him and then sent him back to Pilate. And after that, his life was put up for auction alongside a rebellious robber named Barabbas with cries from a bloodthirsty mob hollering at the top of his lungs, crucify him, crucify him. Think of the emotional suffering. Think of the physical suffering. When Jesus asked, of the high priest for witnesses to be brought, he was struck in the face. He was spat upon. He was slapped with an open hand. He was beaten with closed fist. 
crown of thorn was placed on his head. He then received an awful and brutal scourging. Rightly did the writer of Psalm 129 say this in verse 3, The plowers have plowed upon my back. They have made long their furrows. And then he was crucified. Think of the spiritual suffering. Jesus, the Lamb of God, became sin on our behalf. Never having sinned, never having known guilt, never having known shame or disgrace, never having felt hate or lust, at Calvary, the torrential flood of all the sins of the whole world are placed upon him on the six hours that he's on the cross. Think about that. Every bad thought that has ever been thought, every act of immorality, every adulterous affair, every hateful and foul word, every act of theft or bribery, every whisper of gossip, every physical assault, every murder, every profanity-laced sentence, every act of deception and dishonesty, every slanderous comment, every act of disloyalty to a wife, to a husband, to an employer, to a friend, every disobedient act of children toward their parents or to those in authority. All sin in all the world for all time was placed upon Jesus Christ. And then on that dark Good Friday, that first Good Friday, the darkness descended. The wrath of God is placed on His Son as full atonement is being made for sin so that forgiveness might be extended to those who believe in Jesus. Indeed, the Lamb of God was taking away the sin of the world. And that spiritual suffering also included separation from His Father. Think about it, every prayer that he had given before was to his father. He addressed him as father. But at that moment when sin came upon him, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus suffered and he died. His death was validated by experts. When the order was given to break the legs of those being crucified so that they would not violate the propriety of the Sabbath, Roman soldiers saw that Jesus was dead. As in, Jesus was no longer breathing, no longer displaying any kind of physical movement, no pulse, no signs of life. Many who have analyzed the death of Christ have said it this way, that he sustained a rapid heartbeat caused by hypovolemic shock that causes fluid to gather in the sac around the heart. And this is called pericardial effusion. And around the lungs, it's called pleural effusion. This explains that after Jesus died and a Roman soldier thrust a spear through his side, piercing heart and lungs, that blood and water came out. These facts are recorded in all of the Gospels to give graphic testimony that the crucifixion of Jesus caused him to die. 
And following his death, the Gospels tell us that Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, came to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. As is the case with some crucifixions, it might take days for the victim to succumb and die of the, of the horrific death that takes place there. But Jesus was on the cross for only six hours when he died. So before releasing the body to Joseph, Pilate made inquiry if in fact Jesus had died. And he didn't take the word of some representative of the Sanhedrin. I think he had had it up to here with the Sanhedrin for that day. Nor did he take the word of some foot soldier. But he received direct eyewitness report from a Roman centurion, the backbone of the Roman army, responsible for a company of a hundred soldiers. Centurions achieved their rank through demonstrating bravery, loyalty, character, prowess in battle. A centurion would be well equipped to determine if an individual was dead, and the centurion standing before Pilate reported that Jesus was in fact dead. So he became a man, he suffered and died, and thirdly, he was buried and rose from the dead. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Two members of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus to a tomb owned by Joseph, which was conveniently located in close proximity to the place of the execution. The Synoptic Gospels each claim that Joseph provided a linen cloth and the Gospel of John adds that Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin who visited Jesus by night in John chapter 3, he provided 75 pounds of burial spices. And they laid Jesus in the tomb. They shrouded him. They placed the burial spices over his remains. They rolled a stone, a stone over the entrance of the tomb upon completion of their preparation of the body. Outside of the tomb were women from Galilee, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, who were eyewitnesses as to where the tomb was. Meanwhile, while fearing that Jesus' disciples might steal the body on the third day, the next day, being the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders negotiated with Pilate to have a guard assigned to the tomb with an official seal placed on it, warning that any who might break the seal and enter the tomb do so under penalty of death. And Pilate gave that authorization. But the resurrection was coming. And that Sunday morning, it was unlike any other before or since. It begins with grieving women on their way to the tomb. An earthquake takes place. Dazzling clad angel descends from heaven, rolls away the stone and sits on it. Guards trembling become like dead men. The angel announces to the women that Jesus is risen and reminds them about what Jesus had said that this would happen, and to go and tell his disciples. The women, women run for joy to tell the disciples the good news, and they encounter Jesus for a brief meet and greet, and he tells them, go, tell the disciples. The guards go into the city to report to the chief priests that for some reason, the tomb that they had been tasked to guard is now empty. So now we have a hastily called chief priest and elders meeting, followed by the procurement of large sums of money 
given to the guards to tell a contrived story about doing what guards don't do, namely sleep on duty, along with the promise that if the governor hears about it, we'll take care of him as well. Meanwhile, the women tell the disciples of the resurrection of Jesus, but they are not believed. Immediately following that, we have the first apostolic foot race, beginning with Peter leaving the gathering and running to the tomb. But he's outrun to the tomb by John. John wins the race, but Peter gets points for bravery because he actually goes into the tomb and sees the linen wrappings and the face cloth lying apart from each other. And as they return to where they were staying, Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb and stands outside weeping. Looking inside the tomb, she sees no one but two angels in white sitting where Jesus had been placed in the tomb. And the angels ask her, why are you weeping? And she responds, she doesn't know where they've taken the body of Christ. Jesus answers her as she's weeping and says, who is it you're looking for? And she turns around thinking she's speaking to the gardener. Jesus says to her, Mary, and immediately she recognizes and falls before him and clings to him. Jesus prophesies to her of his ascension and sends her to the disciples to tell them. And she does as she's asked, but they still don't believe her. Not long after that, two men, one of them named Cleopas, travels seven miles northwest from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus. Along the way, they're joined by, on the journey by a man they don't recognize. They discuss the recent events of the execution of Jesus, whom they thought to be the Messiah of Israel, and that his once-entombed body is now missing. The stranger then begins to conduct what I call the first mobile prophetic conference linking Old Testament prophecy with the fulfillment found in the risen Christ. And it being late in the day, the travelers say, come, stay with us. And as they sit down to eat, he breaks bread with them. And it is then that they recognize him as Jesus, the Messiah, the risen Christ. And then he vanishes before their eyes. And so at that point in time, we have the second foot race of the day as those two guys hightail it back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples all that they have seen. And upon arriving there, they're informed that where the disciples have gathered, they find out Jesus has also appeared to Peter. And while they were talking about all that had taken place that day, Jesus miraculously appears in the middle of the room to his ten disciples and the two travelers from Emmaus. And he shows them his wounds, and he asks for something to eat, validating this is a physical bodily resurrection. And the witnesses are plentiful. Because in the next 39 days until his ascension, he makes post-resurrection day appearances. And Paul writes with confidence in Corinthians in the 15th chapter of his first letter, he was seen by more than 500 people at one time. And so, friends, the good news is the facts are in. He is risen. Uh, let's do that one more time. He is risen. He is risen and this is the fact that separates Christ from every other belief system. They stand on foundations of quicksand. They're contrived fallacies and fantasies filled with false promises. They're myths that exist to deceive man and separate him from his maker and his savior. They force their adherents to work their way to a certain eternal, uncertain eternal future. Their leaders are dead, their remains are entombed, and that, my friends, is the opposition. King David's song in 1 Chronicles 16, 
in celebrating the ark returning to, his, uh, to Jerusalem, says this, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens and the earth. So our Messiah is alive. He is seated at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. He's preparing a place for us. Stephen saw him when he was being stoned to death for as he was confronting the Sanhedrin with the murder of Christ. Paul, on a mission to destroy the church, sees Jesus and becomes its greatest missionary. And John describes his victorious return in Revelation. So we remember today his suffering, his death. Let's not lose sight of the fact that he is returning for us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And if we have Christ's forgiveness of our sins, we have a future home in glory. I love what the writer of Love Lusters at Calvary in the Puritan book of Meditations, The Valley of Vision, said as he describes what Christ did for us. Christ was all anguish that we might be all joy, cast off that we might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that we might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that we might attain heaven's best, stripped that we might be clothed, wounded that we might be healed, a thirst that we might drink, tormented that we might be comforted, made ashamed that we might inherit glory, enter darkness that we might have eternal light. Our Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from our eyes, groaned that we might have endless song, endured all pain that we might have unfading, unfading health, bore a thorny crown that we might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that we might uplift ours, experienced reproach that we might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that we might gaze on unclouded brightness. He died that we might live forever. And the good news is the story is not over. With Christ, every promise that he has made are promises that he will keep. When Jesus comes for those who have trusted in him, God will restore all things. He will make all things new. Mankind will no longer be fallen, but we will realize the redemption that he has given for us, that he has made for us, and we will forever be his, and we are included in his story. And so this morning, we remember the greatest event in all of human history, Christ's sacrifice for us that he gave up the glory of heaven, he set aside his position, submitted to the will of his Father, and that he took on the form of man, lived as a servant, suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried. But the good news, that he rose from the dead, and that if you have believed in him, you have placed your faith in him alone for your salvation, then he has brought you out of darkness into his light. You are adopted into his family. Your sins are forgiven, they're covered by his blood. You are no longer dead in your sins and transgressions, but are alive because of your faith in him. And at his return, you will be glorified with him and enjoy eternity with him forever. His mercy and grace and steadfast love are beyond our comprehension, but they are not beyond our reach at all. He has made it so. 
Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.